Midterm votes matter. Hello, and welcome to the 2022 Good Trouble Voting Rights Podcast, sponsored by Black Women for Positive Change, featuring host Dr. Georgia Dunstan and co-host Dr. Stephanie Myers. Ladies, take it away. Hello, everyone, and welcome today to the fourth session in our 10-part Black Women for Positive Change 2022 Good Trouble podcast, where we come together every second and fourth Wednesday of the month to talk about hot topics on why midterm votes matter, where HOT, H-O-T, stands for healing our thinking on voting and voting rights as our supreme responsibility and our inheritance as citizens of the United States of America. Today, our panelists will talk about why midterm votes matter to us individually and collectively as citizens, where the Constitution is the supreme law of the land and where the rule of law applies not only to our constitutional democracy form of government, but also to the quality of our lives as American citizens. I am Dr. Georgia M. Dunstan, chair of the Black Women for Positive Change Science Committee, co-chair of our Voters' Rights Subcommittee, and host of this Black Women for Positive Change 2022 Good Trouble Voting and Voters' Rights Podcast. I am joined by our co-host for this podcast, Dr. Stephanie Myers, co-founder and national co-chair of Black Women for Positive Change. With her today are our two esteemed guest panelists, Attorney Evan Milligan, Executive Director of Alabama Forward, a statewide civic engagement network, and Charlene Ligon, a retired Air Force Master Sergeant, entrepreneur, publisher, author, and the Black Women for Positive Change webmaster. Let me turn the microphone over now to our co-host, Dr. Stephanie Myers, to introduce herself, our guests, and our hot topic for today's podcast. Thank you, Dr. Dunstan, and thank you to all of our special guests here this afternoon and the people who are listening remotely. This is such an urgent time involving voting rights. And this afternoon, we are pleased to be talking about individual responsibility, personal responsibility for voting rights. 
And we have two really excellent guests with us that it's my pleasure to introduce. Charlene Butts-Ligan is a retired U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant. She's very special to Black Women for Positive Change because she's our webmaster and handles all of our communications. But she's also a very active and involved citizen who believes in voting rights. And she works as the chair of the Sarpy County Democratic Party and secretary of the Nebraska Democratic Party, which, member, which means that she's a national member of the Democratic Party in the United States. Very important position. So thank you for being here with us, Chairman Ligon. And I'll introduce our next guest, and then we'll get to some questions. Our, our second guest is Evan Milligan, Attorney Milligan. And he lives in Alabama. And he's worked for 20 years working with the Black community and pro-democracy efforts. He started a group, or he serves as the executive director for a group that was launched in 2020 called Alabama Forward. And this is a nonprofit working to establish the efforts of nonpartisan organizations throughout Alabama to work on focusing the voter base and protecting voting rights and making election systems as accessible as possible. And we're gonna talk this afternoon about how Attorney Milligan is, is pushing a court case all the way to the Supreme Court. But before we get to that, both of our guests this afternoon have real ties to history. They're being motivated through passion and historical examples of what they've seen. So I'd like to ask our chairperson of the Sarpy Dem Democratic Party, Charlene Ligon, to share with us a story that really motivated you. Why are you so passionate about voting rights? Tell us your passion and the source of that passion. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Myers. My passion comes from my mom, Evelyn Butts. She was a real activist in Norfolk, Virginia, where I'm originally from. She took a, the case to the Supreme Court to knock down the poll tax. And that was in 1966 when it was decided. But she originally started with the case in 1963. And it went through several courts, local courts in Virginia until it got to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. That allowed African-Americans and poor people, just poor people in general, to begin to vote in larger numbers. Originally in 1964, they, this 24th Amendment was passed and that amendment ensured that every voter could, uh, U.S. citizen that voted could vote without paying a, a poll tax in federal elections. But there were five states that decided to keep the poll tax and Virginia, of course, being one of them, but it was Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi, Texas, and, and then of course, Virginia. But my mom saw a huge, and Virginia saw, and during in those five uh, states, saw a huge uptick in registering, uh, African-Americans registering to vote. So that inspired me, of course, to do what I do today, but my mom always did, starting from 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, when I was six years old. That's when we started in, in the civil rights movement. And once I retired from the Air Force and was here in Nebraska, where we decided to stay, 
after retirement, I became interested in, well, not became interested, I've always been interested, but that led me to participate in uh, in the process in 2008 when Barack Obama was running. And my contribution was to register voters, like my mom before me registered voters. And that was one of the reasons Barack Obama won the second congressional district here in Nebraska, because we all got out and registered new voters. Great, great. So firsthand passion from your mom. Well, Attorney Milligan, please share with us what is the event or the person or the experience that got you passionate about working for voting rights? Thank you, Dr. Myers, again, for, for allowing me to join today. You calling me Attorney Milligan. I, I do want to say for the record, I, I did finish law school, but I've never practiced law. So I, I want to, I, I don't want to be having uh, <laughs> accolades that I haven't probably <laughs> earned okay. that people hear this. But for me, you know, my parents really are my, are my primary sort of influences in terms of my approach and my values around um, community. Uh, health and, and, you know, democracy, liberation. I got my love of the arts from my dad and then my love of of activism in many ways from my mom. They, they were both patrons of the arts and fans of activism and involved in it. But in terms of the, the way that they embodied it on a daily basis, my dad was the arts person. My mom was the, the more community organizer, activist person, so much to the point that every house i can remember us living in at least from the mid 90s or wherever she's lived for certain there's always been a ballot from the first south african election because she had a friend who was working over there uh with the peace corps at the time she was running uh lois hobson is her name she was uh running the peace corps office in zimbabwe and then i think ended up spending a lot of time in south africa during the during those first elections when Mr. President Mandela was on the ticket. And so that was just, that was the kind of household that I grew up in. But even before that, you know, I had this Montgomery shirt on. So it was uh, just, she, my mom was born here in 1952. My dad was born in Houston in 1945. So they both had very vivid experiences of segregation and had found their own ways into different corners of the liberation movements that began to emerge after Dr. King was assassinated. So for my mom, because she had this personal connection to, you know, memories of, of my great grandfather driving in the um, the carpools during the bus boycott or the Selma to Montgomery March and her, her mom and grandparents allowing her to stay home from school that day so she could see the marchers come in down Dexter Avenue and those are the things that you know i think for a lot of people in my age group i was born in 81 a lot of us were fortunate enough to have met those elders who were born you know right at the turn of the century in the 1900s and so those were unique people because their grandparents had been born into slavery and um they themselves had lived through the lynching era of the 20s and well up to the 20s and through the 20s and and after that and and the, the you know the uh, desegregation movements so there was a sense of what what they had put on the line that i think i was exposed to because i 
I saw these people. They were my aunt, great aunts and my great grandparents. And that was just in our house. My mom was like, you know, Evan, you never once you're 18, you don't have a choice. If you want to talk to me, like, don't don't come talk to me if you haven't voted like that. And she's still like that to this day. So, um, you know, that that was my my, my biggest influence. OK, well, Charlene Ligon, you mentioned your mom and the poll tax for some of our listeners. They might not know what a poll tax is. Would you please explain what the poll tax was? and what your mom was angry about and why she wanted to get rid of it. The poll tax was a fee you had to pay, uh, similar to, I think it actually, they attached it to uh, personal property tax billing in, in, during that time in the state of Virginia in a way. But at that particular time, now this has been a long, long time ago, it was a dollar and 50 cents. And if you hadn't paid, you had to pay uh, three years. So if you never had uh, paid the tax, then you had to pay a delinquency also, which would amount to a pretty good uh, uh, sum in today's dollars. It, it comes out to be $50, $60 in our dollars today, which is a lot to pay for your right to vote. What she did, as a matter of fact, I wrote a book about her called Fearless, How a Poor Virginia Seamstress took on Jim Crow and uh, supported her community. So I went to that, the poll tax was detrimental to poor people. Poor people were not, you know, when you're, you don't have a lot of money and you have to feed and clothe your family and, you know, pay rent or pay house note or whatever, then, you know, paying to vote is probably one of the last things that an individual or a household would do. And especially in the African-American community, but they were also poor white people that benefited from her, the, from the, uh, her uh, uh, taking this case and getting it knocked down at the Supreme Court. So uh, actually, if you go back at the, at the research that I did, Voter registration really picked up. You know, my mom personally was uh, responsible for uh, registering tens of thousands of voters in the state of Virginia. And she personally, and then that goes out to all the other areas, all the other people that took advantage of uh, registering voters during that time also. So it, it was uh, uh, just another voter suppression, just like we see today. The, uh, the goal of the uh, Republican Party is to suppress uh, votes, you know, suppress the vote and don't allow people to participate in the process. That's how they, they, they are able to control, the, uh, control our government. Okay, well, thank you for mentioning the book. And for our listeners, the name of the book is Fearless by Charlene Butts-Ligon, and you can order it online, and everyone should. Now, Evan Milligan, uh, and I won't call you Attorney Milligan this time. Evan, you have filed a lawsuit called Milligan versus Morrell, and it has to do with the voting rights protections, not only in Alabama, but all over the country. Would you please tell us what Milligan versus Morrell lawsuit is all about? Yes, ma'am. So Milligan versus Merrill is a federal challenge to con congressional uh, voting district maps that our state government recently adopted into law last 
last November. So after our 2021 cycle of redistricting and here in Alabama, redistricting, redistricting is facilitated by a bipartisan committee within our state legislature. So they'll, they propose the maps, they take notes and comment. Well, actually this time they didn't even present the maps on the, on the, <laughs> on the front end. They basically took notes and comments from community members in early September, a very short amount of time after the census data was released uh, last year, the 2020 census data. So they, they, they took notes from community members around what do you want to see in your congressional maps or your state, you know, Senate, state house maps, board education at the state level. And then what, what they were supposed to have done, kind of taken that information and allowed that to um, inform the maps that they ultimately presented to the legislature during a special session. Um, and then the, then both si both houses or both chambers of that session voted uh, in favor of the maps and then it went to the, to the to the desk of the governor. A unique feature here in Alabama was that the people of Alabama didn't really see the maps that were that were going to be presented by this committee and presented to the legislature until a few days before the special session started in October. And it was on that we only saw it because one of the members of that session leaked it via his Twitter because he knew that it hadn't aired. So that that that, that gives you a, a, a sense of what our process was here or lack thereof here in Alabama. So we challenged the maps basically under the theory that our black Alabamians account for about 26% of our state population. In the history of our state post reconstruction, we've only had one of our seven congressional districts that has elected a black to Congress. And that district was actually created, that's, that's Congress, that's Congressional District 7. That was actually created uh, due to, you know, federal court intervention in the early 90s as a Voting Rights Act congressional district. So prior, so but for the Voting Rights Act, we wouldn't even have the seventh district. So what we've said is, all right, one out of seven is about 18, 17 percent. Our our population is 26 percent, which would mean that just if we look at the demographics of where black people in the state live, we can actually create maps that congressional maps that comport with traditional standards of redistricting and also allow for a second congressional district that features a majority vo black voting age population or as close to it as possible. That was the, the, the core of our argument. And, uh, and also saying not only can we do that, but unless the state of Alabama has a compelling reason not to do so, that it violates the Voting Rights Act if we don't do that. So that was the argument that was presented to the district level federal court uh, here in the Northern Alabama district. So that would have been Birmingham. There were two judges that were appointed by President Trump. And then one I believe had been appointed by President Reagan, if not the first President Bush. So this was not, you know, a, a, a DC federal court as far as voting rights, friendliness towards voter rights, hey, voter, voter, voting rights. And they they ruled unanimously in our favor, so the opinion was you know well over 200 pages. Now I wasn't I'm a plaintiff in the case, so and there's there's uh, five other plaintiffs. There's uh, four individuals. So myself, Shalila Dowdy, 
Kadita Stone, Letitia Jackson, and then two organizations are plaintiffs, Greater Birmingham Ministries and the Alabama uh, NAACP. And all of these plaintiffs are people who have been, you know, it's a range of ages, but all are organizers, committed civil rights advocates here in the state of Alabama, uh, people, black people with, with deep family ties here. So, um, you know, we, 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 we got that ruling and then the state of Alabama and the, and the court said, not only have you, not only is it highly likely that the plaintiffs will be, if this goes to trial, that the plaintiffs will show and demonstrate that and effectively demonstrate that the state has violated the voting rights act section two of the voting rights act but the the state of alabama should go back to the drawing board and within i think they gave them 14 days to come back with maps that produce two majority voting age black districts or as close to it as possible so and they said and if you can't produce that map then we have we'll have a, a you know a special map maker that our court will supervise that will that will produce one long story short the state of alabama ignored that they petitioned for a stay the supreme court granted that stay uh with a 5-4 decision basically saying that the primary elections were too close for them to alter the maps that's an interesting decision because nobody had seen the maps before so they weren't really relying on them and, uh, the campaign campaigning for the primary hadn't really started because this is back in january we had our primary elections, I believe, in April, if not May. It was some. It was some time in the spring. So, state appealed the lower court's decision. The Supreme Court agreed to hear our case in as far as the merits of our case. So, when they when they ruled on the state, they weren't ruling on our merits. They were just ruling on the real tight issue of if the state should be forced to make new maps. Um, they agreed to hear an actual oral argument, an oral presentation by our attorneys in the state of Alabama's attorneys, and they will hear that argument on October 4th. So that that case and there are there are at least 10 other lawsuits percolating through federal courts right now that are basically bringing claims under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act to challenge racial gerrymandering in their respective states. And what the Supreme Court is, is telling these states is we have to first resolve this Milligan versus Merrill case. Uh, Merrill is the last name of our current Secretary of State, Secretary uh, John Merrill. So we need to resolve this and then pending the outcome of that, that will shape how we respond to these other cases. Okay. So it's a, it's a really critical case in terms of what it will do to what, what it will mean for the Voting Rights Act. Um, and the ability of, of federal courts and the federal government to have oversight when, when states utilize racial gerrymandering and other forms of racial bias in voter discrimination. That's outstanding. Well, we commend both of you and your families for the courage that you've shown. And Dr. Dunstan has put together a very special voting pledge where we're trying to get people to promise to vote. Dr. Dunstan, can you talk about the voting pledge? And let's see if Nebraska and Alabama might be people that can help with that. Well, thank you. And I want to thank each of our speakers, Charlene Legan and Evan Milligan for your wonderful presentations that's rooted in your family history, which is very, very important. On our website, Black Women for Positive Change, and we have our esteemed webmaster, 
Charlene here. We have the pledge, the John Lewis Good Trouble, one million plus memorial pledge. And we would invite each of you, each in our audience to go to the Black Women for Positive Change, spelled out B-L-A-C-K-W-M-E-N-F-O-R, P-O-S-I-T-I-V-E-C-H-A-N-G-E dot org and download the pledge, which is taken from the challenge of John Lewis for each of us to get into good trouble. And we consider voting rights the good trouble for our time. So Dr. Myers, um, our Black Women for Positive Change, uh, website does have the pledge and we are desiring to establish a memorial of a million plus signers of this pledge absolutely that's great that's great and i wanted to ask charlene ligan and evan milligan why is there why do you feel there's so much anger and opposition in this country to black people poor white people and other poor people of color getting ahead. Have you personally observed this anger in your work, in your mom's work, Charlene, or Evan, and what you've seen in Alabama? If you had to put your finger on it, what do you think is really leading to all this division and anger that we're witnessing today? Well, I, <laughs> I, you know, if you look back on in history and the beginning of the U.S., we'll just take voting as an example. Originally, the only folks that could vote were landowners. Uh, and then after a while, they decided, well, you know, we'll let, uh, but they were men, first off, landowners. And then they moved on to maybe we'll let the non-landowners, well, we're going to let them vote also. And then came the Civil War and, you know, African-American men or Black men got the opportunity to vote also. Okay, Evan, what's your take on it down there in Alabama? I don't know that there's one, you know, one factor. I think white supremacy and really white body supremacy and just really the esteeming and the prioritizing of of not only empowerment of a certain small segment of white communities, but also just the the ideal of of you know what a body should look like, and what an American body, what an American person should look like and sound like. Those are things that have always been intertwined throughout you know American institutions. And I think our country's pretty young. We we've had we've had moments where our idealism around democracy and and being the country on the hill and the city on the, all of these things that have happened in American history that have been pretty remarkable in terms of the numbers of religious groups and nationalities and and all of these things that that you know people coming together. Yes, a lot of oppression, but if we you know and in addition to the oppression, invention and creativity and jazz and gospel and rock and roll and hip hop. So it's been this, but there's been this, there's been this period over the last, really since President Obama got elected, we're just gonna be honest, where there, that identity of, yeah, you know, y'all can play sports, 
you can sing, but we, you know, we the people that really hold the power in the country is this, right? And then when that got challenged, that unleashed this whole like a, a different type of 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 public discourse and public language. And I think honestly, that language has been profitable for corporate news and for and for people who cover who get paid for clicks and get paid for ad revenue because the stronger that those those corporations are the harder it is I mean, they, they can influence who uh, gets gets placed into certain offices who's on the FCC board and those are the places that are supposed to regulate what political speech looks like on our airwaves and, and on and on the internet and places like that so if extremist speech and extremist sorts of political ideas also make a lot of money then it's hard for that like where is the moderate voice in that where is the person that's actually talking about uh you know it's easy to characterize people that are talking about critical thinking and and inclusion and nonviolence in a way that is is less popular right. and so i think i think we're at a point now where Yes, there's an identity crisis, but there's also a realignment of economic interests because they because there are people that are seeing there's this market of people, not only in America, but in Hungary and parts of Poland and parts of Russia, all around the world that are really interested in a certain type of content that is both entertaining for them and it's also an escape from the reality that there are more people of color in positions of power than they've had to contend with before and that's probably very uncomfortable and so that informs the money that informs the politics and the types of extremism and what's interesting to watch in this country is you have a lot of people who are aligning themselves with they're putting up their sails to catch this extremist wind and failing to learn from history that this has happened time and time again whenever you have these conservatives that feel like oh we'll control the nazi we'll control hitler and them they they have a lot of the young people so let's just let them get the young people and get them in and then we'll that's never worked good point good point well dr dunston uh, evan is a rapper and so maybe we ought to appeal to him and maybe he can promote those voting pledges to get people to come into reality and realize <laughs> what is going on here and and having our webmaster uh right here also helps a lot um, any other thoughts? We're kind of coming to the end of our of our discussion, but Dr. Dunstan or Charlene Ligon, Evan Milligan, any any closing thoughts you might have? Well, I have one one more th thought, rather a, a, a little bit of explanation. Uh, I am actually uh, the chair of the Sarpy County Democrats, and I'm also a national committee woman for the Nebraska Democratic Party and which makes me a member of the Democratic National Committee. Now, I did hold that uh, seat as secretary of the party from 09 to, uh, to 2016. So I, I held that position for a long time. So uh, I, I just want to make that clear to clarify that. Okay, well, you're showing how a citizen can be so active. That's great. Sure, Dr. Dunstan. Uh -huh. Yes, uh, just in, in closing, again, to thank our guests for their tremendous input, but also to, uh, to speak to how their input ties into 
our theme, <laughs> and we, uh, voter rights. We know that the vote is the most powerful non-violent change agent we have in a democratic society. And we must use it because it is not guaranteed we can lose it. And I want to acknowledge each of our guests today for the role that they are playing in ensuring that we use it and we do not lose it. And also the fact that they brought their family in because we are looking at in our 11th annual uh, conference, we are looking at nonviolence, families, voter rights, and opportunities. And our speakers today have tied those two together. And now individual as well as corporate or group rights. And as we close, we as a people, particularly African-Americans, our history in this country from human rights, through civil rights, through voter rights, and I like to say as a human genome scientist to birth rights. We are now dealing with our birthright, which is our inheritance that has come through our history in this country. And it is our destiny as a people to bring humanity into the fullness of the light of our inheritance. Voter rights is for such a time as this, but it is pointing to our inheritance our inheritance, which gets to what I call our genome rights, which deals with our inheritance. So from voter rights today, to birth rights, to such a time as this, which is our genome rights as creations of the creator. Thank you, um, Dr. Myers. Okay, well, thank you. And thank you to our producer, Damon Naylor, and to Charlene Ligon, National Committee Woman from the state of Nebraska, and Evan Milligan, who's had the guts to go sue the state of Alabama before the Supreme Court, right on. You guys <laughs> represent and personify what Dr. Dunstan and what Black Women for Positive Change and our good brothers, that's what we're about, making change, positive change. Positive. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Midterm votes matter. 